This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 113. You ready? You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey there, and welcome to the show. My name is Michael Blanc. I'm really excited that you're here with us to learn about apartment building investing and how you can use that to achieve financial freedom. Today on the show, I am super excited to have with me Peter Conti. Peter Conti's been around for a long time in the 90s. He's had tens of thousands of people buy his books, attend his seminars and events. In fact, he was uh, one of the earliest books I read was Making Big Money, Investing in Foreclosures Without Cash or Credit, and Making Big Money, Investing in Real Estate Without Tenants, Banks, or Rehab Projects. He also co-authored Commercial Real Estate Investing for Dummies. So he's been around a long time. These were one of the first two real estate books I ever learned. And the thing I still remember to this day was the negotiation tactics he had in there were brilliant. And the creative financing he had in there, the first time I ever, I ever saw that. I had the Robert Allen, you know, nothing down for the 2000s. The creativity he had with lease options, master leases, seller financing were brilliant in these books. So I had a chance to interview Peter personally in his house in Annapolis, which is not too far from where I'm in Northern Virginia, and really got to hang out with him. A really, really nice guy. He's had a serious life event. I don't know if you know this, but several years back, he had a really bad motorcycle accident and shattered his hip, and he really couldn't walk for an entire year. And he figured, well, shoot, in order to fix that, if he could walk the entire length of the Appalachian Trail, surely he must be healed. Over the course of the next 18 months, managed to walk the entire Appalachian Trail, which is 2,100 something, all the way from way down south to Maine. Really interesting guy. And he started from an auto mechanic and started buying apartment buildings. Now, this was back, I think, in the 90s. So he kind of talks about on a show about how he did that. And he didn't do it with syndication. And he didn't do it with having a bunch of money. He did it in a creative way using some of these creative financing techniques that he has in his book with lease options and master leases and seller financing. Really cool stuff. And then we get a little more philosophical because he's had a lot of time to think about life and putting things in perspective. So I'm really, really excited now to get into interview with Peter Conti. All right, I'm here with Peter Conti, the co-author of this book, Commercial Real Estate Investing for Dummies. And, hello, everybody. Hello. And also co-wrote two of the books that I first got read when I did real estate investing, which is these two books, Making Big Money Investing in Foreclosures and Making Big Money Investing in Real Estate. So I love to hear that. And let me, <laughs> let me ask you one question. So you bought the books? I did. That's awesome. I did I, buy the books. I was talking with a, a gentleman a couple months ago, and he's actually you know big name in real estate right now, teaching people all over the country. And he got started from one of my books. Uh-huh. He went into Barnes & Noble, looked at the book, read how to do some stuff, <laughs> put it back on the shelf, put it back on the shelf, went out and made some money with it. And he, he like thanked me and he said, I should probably buy your book now. Now and I said, yeah, that'd be great. But I just enjoy like you do, Michael. I know from getting to know you over time that you really enjoy helping people make that step from where they are to getting out there and getting started actually doing something. And I love the way you've figured out if someone can get that first deal done, that that's a turning point for them in their life. It is. But speaking of a turning point, I mean, you were an auto mechanic, right? And now, so I want to ask you a little bit about that because a lot of people just, they drift through life and they're, they complain about it, but they never do anything about it. What was happening to you at the time when you were an auto mechanic? What snapped in your mind that compelled <laughs> you into action? What was going on and why did you want to change your life at the time? Well, I was like, you know, probably many of the people listening to this podcast. We didn't have podcasts back then. This was in like 1990. 
in the late 80s was when I was reading real estate investing books and stuff like that, listening to audio cassette tapes. If you're watching this, you don't know what those are. You can you know, ask your grandfather and he'll tell you. I had known that I was going to do something with real estate, but I hadn't taken action on it. Why hadn't I? Well, because I was busy being an auto mechanic and raising my kids and my family. And it was something that you know, a lot of people have something like, yeah, I'm going to do real estate or I, I want to do that someday. And the day that I made the decision is just so crystal clear. I was in that auto repair shop working for this guy. He was saving money by keeping the heat down in the wintertime in Colorado, where I live. And my fingers were actually getting numb. It was so cold. I remember being like with this light, trying to see, wasn't really well lit, just trying to do my job and make a living and take care of my family. And I'd only worked there about two weeks. And I didn't realize that they had a coffee maker up in the front office. And Chuck, the shop foreman, he walked out in the shop with this big, hot, steaming cup of coffee. I said, wow, I got to get some of that. I went up, poured myself a cup of coffee, wrapped my fingers around it just to warm up or anything else. And just as I was turning to go back to work, the owner of the company came over to me and he said, Peter, that coffee is for customers only. (laughs) And I just was like, oh, "Oh." it was that point in time. I don't know if anyone's ever like made you feel like two inches tall. That's pretty small. I decided at that moment that I was going to do whatever it took to be in charge of my financial destiny. Mm. Now, it was actually about a year or so after that, that I finally got to the point where I started going and figuring out some ways to buy property. We'd talk more about that. That'd be helpful. Yeah. I mean, so you thought, you were thinking about real estate. You kind of thought, well, if I want to ever get out of this thing, you were thinking real estate in some way or fashion. What did you do next? Well, one of the things that I did was I started getting a little bit of information and a little bit of information sometimes can be a great thing because if you know a little bit and you know, you need to go out and take action with it, that's awesome. And so that's what I did. I went out and I found a real estate agent. His name was Don. I said, I want to get into investing. It's interesting for me, you talk about people who either skip houses altogether, or maybe they get started with houses. They do that for a while. They find that they can't really replace their income and they eventually move into commercial. And I've seen a lot of people over the years do that as well. For me, it really boiled down to, I just was too scared, I think, to do houses or not capable or whatever you want to call it. I I would look at these houses and I didn't feel comfortable valuing a house. And I wasn't comfortable with just the idea, well, if a similar one, you know, someone paid this, then that makes it the value, right? Now with commercial, we've got a formula that we can figure out, which is what I loved when I finally figured that out. But it took me some time to figure that out. So what I did is in the beginning, I got this agent. He found this duplex. He said, it's a great deal. It was actually a HUD property. And they had a program at that point in time where it was only 5% down for investors. And even with a little bit of money I had as a mechanic, I was able to come up with that and put that deal together. The funny thing about it is I talk to people sometimes, I'm sure you do, where they're like, you know, Michael, I want to get started with apartment buildings, and but I'm scared. I do, Or maybe they don't say they're scared, but there's fear there, right? Yeah. I was scared to death. I remember being at that closing and I was physically shaking. I was so motivated to make a change because, I mean, I didn't go to college. I didn't have a lot of options in my life. I could be an auto mechanic and there's nothing wrong with being an auto mechanic. Kind of fun. You know, take a car, doesn't run, fix it. It's running. People think you're magical somehow. But I wanted something bigger, better. I wanted to live just life and do things. Yeah. So I knew that if I didn't get real estate to work, that I wasn't going to be able to live the life of my dreams. And so I really, really wanted it bad. And on the other side of that was this fear. It was almost like those two things were fighting inside of me. Mm-hmm. And I remember Don reaching over to me, patting me on the back. He said, Peter, take a breath. 
It's going to be all right. Okay. And so then what happened now that year, you know, I think big like you, I'd set a goal my first year of how many properties do you think I set a goal for? I don't know. First year, I mean, two or three is probably pretty good. Well, a hundred. <laughs> All right. That's or a hundred. Ridiculous, of course. All right. And uh, I think looking back at it, that I was one of those people that if I set this really big goal and I didn't reach it or didn't fail completely, then who could blame them? You know, you didn't, who could go out and get a hundred properties in a year? So it's February that I got that first duplex. And then I started learning more. And the more I learned, wow, I realized there was all this stuff that could go wrong with real estate. And I started doing my investing and subscribe to a service where you could see what someone had paid for the properties. If you're going to go and negotiate, it's good mm-hmm. to know what they paid. And and I just would get a deal and start looking at the numbers and going in the roof and repair estimates and all that type of stuff. I even had a little box with my cards where I had the phone numbers of people, leads that I talked to, and I indexed them so that they were in order so I could make sure I never called someone you know, accidentally twice. That's an important part of investing, right? Complete waste of time. <laughs> and it was in August of that year. So what is that? Six, seven months later, mm. I was sitting down. I was at Chuck E. Cheese's. I tend to combine things. I've got four kids like you've got four kids. So I'm there doing business while my kids are playing at Chuck E. Cheese's. <laughs> I was there with Dan, my life insurance guy. And he sat down with me once a year for this, whatever your life insurance anniversary. I think they're trying to calculate the day you're going to die or something. And so his job was to sell me from a term policy up to a whole life policy. And life insurance, I think it's a great deal. Everyone should absolutely have it, particularly if you're going to be the one doing investing and earning money for your family. I just don't like investments that require me to die in order to pay off. (laughs) So he was saying things like, well, Peter, do you care about your family and kids? You know, of course, yes, Dan, are you, you plan to take care of me? Yes, Dan, yes, yes. And he says, well, how do you do that? I said, well, I'm a real estate investor. Then he did kind of the Dr. Phil thing. He said, oh, great. How's that going for you? I said, well, uh, I've got a duplex. And it was at that moment, you talk about moments of change. It was at that moment that I realized I needed to do something different because here I was thinking of myself as a real estate investor and with this big goal of buying 100 properties. And I'd only gotten one. And I was just sitting there spinning my wheels. Mm. And I realized at that moment that what I had done wrong is I'd tried to do it on my own. You see, earlier in that year, I'd come across a mentor. His name was Keith. He wanted $5,000 for his training. He had done like a 1,000 apartment units, certainly knew what he was doing. And I looked at $5,000 from the viewpoint of an auto mechanic. From a mechanic that, you know, my best year, I was making, you know, twenty twenty four thousand dollars $24,000, something like that. $5,000 was a lot of money. Now, from a real estate deal, certainly a commercial real estate deal, heck, $5,000, that's rounding area on some of the, the bigger deals I know that you're involved with. Mm. And it's at that moment I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a mentor. And I told Keith before, no, that's too expensive. I can't afford that. And I went back to him and I said, I'm going to do it. I found a way to make it happen. And in his training, he just went through really some basic stuff. Some of the stuff actually you teach on your awesome podcast of being able to take a property and go through and look at the income and use a cap rate and turn that into a value. So you know with a simple formula what that property's worth. And to me, that that really helped me because with the houses, it was like this person paid, Mystery. but maybe, yeah, yeah, just, well, what if the next person comes along and they pay a lot less? Does the value go down based on emotions? I like the fact that apartment buildings are based on a formula that we can count on. That's actually easier to value it. Yeah. yeah. I also like the idea that the more income you bring in, the more the mm-hmm. property's worth. Yeah. And that got me over the, the hump and I went out there and I know that you talk about people being able to, from the point in time they make the decision, 
being able to replace their income within three years. And I found that that worked out for me as well. Hmm. So, so you got right into the apartment buildings and from your duplex, was that like the next thing you did? Well, I, I worked up to it. I, I had a duplex and so I was going to stretch myself. I'm like, well, I've got a four unit. I did two, right? I could do four, yeah, right? Yeah. After the four, I got another four and then a 12 and then a 24 and kind of went up from there. So I kind of stretched my muscles and worked my way into a little bit and eventually ended up doing shopping center deals and yeah. you know, 300 unit apartment properties and all kinds of fun projects like that. So phasing the law of the first deal at work. Now, at one point, were you able to quit your job? When did that happen? When I was a mechanic, when I first got started investing, I was actually doing some stuff on my own. I was running these little emission testing stations mm -hmm. in Colorado mm -hmm. before it was turned over to a, a one contractor to run it for the entire state. So I had, I guess today's like, what do they call it, a side hustle or something yeah, like that yeah. going on. Mm -hmm. So it was a little bit different from people out there who may be working for a corporation or something like that. But what I did do was I basically kept the stuff going that I had best as I could. I stopped working as an auto mechanic, kept my little side hustle going, and then kind of merged my way into the investing. So I didn't have like a day of quit your old job day or anything like that, like a lot of people did. It was a little bit different for me. You just phase it out. Yeah. What are some of the roadblocks you got into early on when you were getting into these things? I think one of them obviously was mental. And it looks like you overcame that with a mentor that helped you over that. You acquired some knowledge and maybe some confidence. What other roadblocks did you encounter uh, in those early days? Well, I think one of the biggest insights for me, and again, this was uh, kind of a breakthrough for me with apartment building investing versus investing in houses. With houses, you were expected to come up with earnest money up front. And you put that money on the line. And yes, you had inspection and a few other things where you could get out of it. But there was always that fear of if I put my money in this deal and it's not a good deal, I might make a mistake and I might lose money. I found that's true for a lot of people when they look at investing in houses or apartment buildings. One of the biggest fears is, yes, I want to get in life, but I don't want to lose the money that I've made so far. I don't want to put in a deal and have it end up being a bad deal because I'm new at it, right? Mm -hmm. And what I found in commercial is that you're able to take an addendum, the one I use is called an addendum A and attach that to the back of the commercial contract that people are used to seeing. I learned that using the commercial contract in many cases is a good idea because that's what the brokers and owners are used to seeing. And if you have your own, we call them like a seminar contract, something that's totally in the favor of the buyer and the commercial broker looks at that and it's not what they're used to seeing, they might react negatively to that saying, oh, it looks like a seminar came through town or something. We've got these weird contracts. But you could put language in the addendum that basically said things like, this contract is fully assignable. And that way you didn't have to put your entity name or Peter Conti, you wouldn't put and or signs after it because if the broker looks at that or the owner looks at that, you're going to wholesale it. Right, right. <laughs> I don't want that. They're, you're going to have them negative on the deal before yeah. they even start reading it. That's right. The other thing that really helped with that is having a clause in there that basically gives you time. The clause that I use asks for a bunch of stuff from the seller. And they have to get all this stuff to you. Then you have X number of business days. We used to put 10 business days. Some of my students even put, you know, 30 business days in there, which is a long time when you figure that out. But basically, the seller has, has to get you all these documents, stuff for the property. Then the clock starts ticking and you've got a couple of weeks at least from that point in time, which in effect gives you 30, 60 days to be able to do your due diligence and really dig in and make sure it's a good deal. And that was critical for me. And for those of you listening to this, it'd probably be very helpful to you to have something like that because 
I was making the mistake that so many people make is I wanted to know if it was really a perfect good deal before I even made the offer on it. And it's such a complete waste of time, as you know. In fact, one of the things we did at one point in time is we took that addendum A and we added all this other stuff on it. We asked for just everything under the sun, all kinds of stuff we knew that they wouldn't include. Mm -hmm. And it ended up being like six or eight pages long. It's a little bit of a different technique. We used it during a stronger buyer market at the time. Mm -hmm. What we found is that some of those came back. The whole thing was ripped in half. (laughs) We had one that came back with big black magic marker across the front, rejected, underlined. You knew those weren't motivated sellers, right? Right. But the ones that did send it back, either we had some that came back and they accepted every single one of the crazy clauses we put in there. Some of them would cross out a bunch of them. They could cross out three quarters of the clauses. And you in the still addendum. get the ones that you wanted. We wanted that inspection clause that gave us the 30-day time to perform our due diligence. In fact, it says in there, if we don't give them approval in writing, then this contract automatically is void. That's right. And so I realized there's no risk whatsoever in making these deals. I can make all kinds of offers. I can send them out right from my little office I had in my house where I was living at the time. I don't have to go out all over the place looking at these things. Once it gets accepted, then I can put the time into the deal. And then at that point in time, I can check the numbers and look at the expenses and get estimates and repairs and line up investors, whatever I needed to put the deals together. That's a key point because a lot of people are actually afraid that if they make an offer, it might get accepted. It's Mm -hmm. like a, a real fear. And this is a good point is you have a lot of exit clauses because you are going to have time to do due diligence. And so it allows someone to actually get out of a deal for any reason at all. And so it should take the pressure off people. I just find a lot of people are are afraid to put an offer in. Another reason that people are afraid to get started with commercial or apartment buildings is that they feel they don't have any money. What can people do if they don't have the money to buy a 20-unit, 50-unit building? Well, that's a great question. And I would from recommend... The, from the king of creative yeah. financing, I'm sure you might come up with a, with an answer <laughs> to... <laughs> well, I would say that... First off, we're looking uh, at chapter four of the uh... <laughs> <laughs> get get ready for brokers in particular who are going to ask you, great, I'll work with you. How much money you got? Yeah. And one of the courses I got years ago was from a, a guy named Carlton Sheets. I remember on his course mm. where he said, well, the answer to that question is, well, whatever it takes, got as much as you need. And that's easy for someone to say. I know that you do a lot of training with people and teach them syndication and basically how to get someone to realize that once you have a really good deal, that the money's going to be there. And that's something that I I learned over the years, but I didn't know that upfront and have the, the ability to go to your training and learn how to do that upfront. So I was real worried about them saying, you know, do you have the money? In fact, there were times when they'd say, you know, do you have the money? And I would kind of stutter and stumble and didn't handle it really well. And what I found in the beginning for me worked really well. While I did work with brokers because I found that they were great at bringing me awesome deals. They know about deals out there that no one else knows about. I found that if I could get a hold of the owner, this is in the very beginning, if I could get a hold of the older and I had a, a sheet where I'm kind of filling out, asking questions about the property and how many units and what's the mix and rents and all that type of stuff. And then I would kind of just slip it in there. I'd say, so sounds like an interesting property. Would you consider possibly carrying some of the financing? is how I introduced the idea of potential owner carry deal. Mm. And you know, a lot of people would say, nope. And I'd say, okay, well, that's what I'm looking for. I mean, it was kind of like my one method I started with was trying to find a motivated seller, mm. someone who wasn't the person who had this you know, pristine property with nothing wrong with it that was 100% occupancy and they're looking for a retail full price buyer. But someone with a property, I found that for me, where I lived in Denver at the time, These were properties in 
decent working class neighborhoods. We're talking about a neighborhood where you feel safe to be during the daytime. Maybe at nighttime, you might not feel perfectly safe, but if people that live there, I assume probably feel safe. Mm -hmm. You know, as far as apartments go, for me, it was uh, C-class properties. And if you're listening to this, C-class property is something that is generally older, maybe some deferred maintenance, maybe not exactly the best part of town, but not in a war zone either. Would that be a good description? Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. And there are motivated sellers like that, where if they sell a building that's distressed in some way, that's going to be difficult to get financing for, any buyer is going to have a problem getting financing. And so they're going to be much more motivated to help on the financing side. Right. So always ask for it. They can always say no. And then you can go to a plan B or just keep looking. This is a great way for you to kind of get into these deals without very little of your own money. Yeah. And so what I did was I didn't try and do the deal right there. If they were open to that idea, mm. I would set up a time to you know get some more information, go out, maybe meet them at the property, sit down, get to know them, create a connection and some rapport, try and find some things maybe that we had in, in uh, common with them. Kids are great. You know, you've got mm. four kids. I've got four kids. We've got that in common. We mm. automatically feel a bond. So I would look for things that we had in common. And then I would point that out to the other person and say, hey, Michael, you've got four kids. Tell me about your kids. Mm. So it's always about the other person and getting them to talk. And it's just speeding up the process. If you think about it, the friends that you have, the people that you know, like and trust, you probably have things in common with them. You know, they've got kids in the same dance class as my mm. kids or whatever. And they go to the same school or they have the same interest. Or we play golf together or whatever it is. And you're just kind of speeding up that process when you create that rapport with someone where they can get to be friends with you faster is kind of the way I think about it. Then I would explain some of the stuff that I'd done already. And for people, if you're listening to this and you haven't done any deals and you feel like maybe you'd be embarrassed or, or uncomfortable going and talking to a broker or an apartment building owner and you know worried that they're going to ask you what your track record is or you know what have you done? You've done a lot of things in your life. Get your mom to say some nice things about you or you know in your job, you've done this, or in, if you've done another business, or if you've bought a house, or if you've gone on a journey, or just look at the things that you've done so far in your life and find a way to be able to explain to people, here's where I am. And for me, it was, look, here's where I am. I want to be able to put my kids through college. I want to take care of my family. It's really important for me to be able to succeed with real estate investing. And I think that this property would be an opportunity for me to do that. Here's the challenge. For this to make sense, from what the numbers are telling me and from what the property can afford, it looks like I might be able to stretch it and get to a point where I could come in. I put maybe a little bit of money in the deals. I, I had one, the 12 unit I mentioned, they actually brought $10,000 to closing. So they mm -hmm. paid me $10,000 to buy their property, which is nice. That's nice. But I would maybe bring a little bit of money in and I would just go in and have them carry the financing or take over the payments, which is another strategy, buying it subject to the existing financing. And for the right person who wanted to get out of the deal, they had this property that they didn't have assistance in place to deal with tenants and handle the challenges, which you know can come up if someone tries to do apartment building investing as a hobby. That's the person you're looking for. We love for. those. Those yeah. are our greatest sellers. Yeah. And by the way, these creative financing techniques, as the first time I ever was exposed to them was in, in your book. So these whole lease options, taking over payments, you know, subject to master leases. I was like, holy cow, this stuff's actually possible. It's brilliant, right? If you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah. Now you've done a bunch of stuff. Now you used apartment buildings. Obviously, that's kind of what you did right out of the gate. Yeah. A lot of people do single family houses first, but you've done a bunch of other stuff. You've done the lease option, done the master leases, commercial property. What advice do you have someone who you know goes to the real estate meetings every single month and they sit there 
and they really are looking for real estate to get them out of their jobs. What is your advice to those people if they want to quit their job with real estate? Well, I think if you're looking to develop a portfolio of properties or a real estate holdings that can actually replace your income and give you the lifestyle that you want, I think that you really need to look at not only commercial, but I think apartment buildings is the place to start with commercial. A lot of people like the idea of having a, a shopping center or something. I've got one down in El Paso that I haven't been there in over 10 years and I get checks all the time that come in the mail from it. It's just, you know, completely handled for me. Those are really nice. But to get started, I think there's no better way than to get out there and get a multi-unit property. Heck, start out with a four unit or a six unit or, you know, 10 unit or something and get your feet wet. One of the things that I did was I would have lunch with brokers that were involved with commercial property. I'd just get to know him over lunch, create some rapport like I talked about. I met one, his name was Tim. And I just said, Tim, look, if you run across anything that you think might be a deal, I'm looking for something that I can, is a little bit distressed or has some issues or something going on. I don't, I don't have a big chunk of money because I hadn't figured out the whole syndication thing at that point in time, right? So, and even if you did have a syndication down, you're not going to just dump a bunch of money into a property unless it has an upside. Tim, I kept in touch with him. He contacted me about six months later. And he said, I found this deal. I tracked the seller down in California and he had gotten a hold of him and he tried to list the property, but they didn't want to list it. They had completely depreciated tax wise and they didn't want to pay the gain by mm-hmm. selling the property. So he said, well, I can't do anything. Why don't you talk to him and see what you can do? I talked to him and the gals that owned it, her name was Corey. She was 88 years old, had Alzheimer's, had this property completely paid for 24 units and she had always figured this property would take care of her in her old age. Mm. The problem was she had just a number of different property management companies. I looked at the records over the past two years and they were just really, you know, kind of overcharging or not doing a good job keeping it fully occupied. I looked at the expenses and I saw where there was, she needed $3,000 a month. Mm. Basically her daughter who was negotiating for her said, if you can pay us $3,000 a month somehow, then we'll figure out a way to put this deal together because that's what they needed to take care of her assisted living care. I looked at it and I realized that, gosh, there's $3,000 a month going to these property management companies. Maybe if I manage it a little bit myself at first, I can turn this thing around. And so what I did is I put together a master lease where I leased the property for $3,000 a month and I agreed to buy it at the point in time when Corey passed away, whenever that was, for basically the price that my real estate broker friend, Tim, had come up with. He had gotten that value based on the income using the formula, coming up with a value, which is how it's done, right? What no one realized was that the rents were way below market. Mm. And so I went in, found out that the rents were below market as part of my due diligence on the deal and took it over. And I didn't want to raise everyone's rents. They were on month-to-month leases and they hadn't been raised in years. I'm sure you run across lazy property management companies that never raise the rents because they don't want people to move and have to deal with it. And so I raised eight of them the first month, eight the second month, eight the third. I didn't want them all, you know, mutinying and moving out all at once. We sent them a letter that said, hey, sorry, you know, I hope you've enjoyed the below market rents. We're going to have to move (laughs) them up. We didn't bump them all the way up to market rents, but we bumped them a pretty good bump to compensate you. We'll come in, we'll paint one of your rooms, give you the services of our handyman for half a day or... I think there was a third thing that we offered them. I can't remember what it was. Maybe half of them moved out, a third of them moved out. When they moved out, it was great. The place was clean, nothing in the way. We could go in, have our crew go in, you know, paint the walls, 
shampoo the carpets, do our turnaround and, and put someone in there at full mm-hmm. rent. The net end result was after three months, we had increased the rents on that building by an average of $85 per unit wow. with 24 units. Now, you know what that's worth. That's a lot of value. For those of you listening to this, mm-hmm. you can figure out the math maybe later on it, but $85 multiplied by 24 units ended up being, uh, it was a little under $3,000 a month. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably getting the math wrong. So if you do the math, that's you've created about three hundred sixty-four thousand dollars of value right there. Yeah, that's that's uh, magic. Yeah, people do it all the time, every day. Now, for someone as an auto mechanic who had to get up at five thirty in the morning and work all day long to make you know twenty twenty-five thousand dollars a year Mm. to be able to make hundreds of thousands of dollars within months was absolutely magic. That is mind blowing. Absolutely magic. That is mind blowing. Now, you've done a lot of things since then, Peter. Lots of things. I mean, you've published books, you have live events, training programs, all kinds of stuff. You know, what have you been up to uh, in, the, in the last few years or so? Well, five years ago, I had an, an interesting incident, we'll call it. I'd taken my son fishing up in Michigan, and we had an awesome time fishing up there. And we ended up getting done a day early. And so we had an extra day before our flight's home. And we said, hey, let's go do something fun. We found these places that rented out four wheelers. Mm-hmm. They really treat two and four wheel sports up there just like they do soccer and other games. Pretty they serious. Have, they have marked trails and stop signs, and it's just really laid out where you can have a fun time. I had so much fun doing that that despite my best wisdom that I'd learned over the years to not be doing things like riding motorcycles in my 50s, <laughs> I convinced my wife that it'd be okay if I bought a couple dirt bikes that me and my son could go riding on. And I promised my wife, I said, Joanna, I'm just going to go trail riding. I'll take it easy. And she said, okay, no racing, right? I go, I promise you, honey, I will not race. Now, where I live here in Annapolis, Maryland, there's not a whole lot of places to ride a dirt bike around here. So I had to drive like an hour and a half to find a place to ride. And it was just getting kind of frustrating. And I found this event. Uh, I guess it was a race in New Jersey. <laughs> but I told myself, I said, I'm not going to race. It's called a hair scrambles. They kind of go through the woods and they go around this like 11 mile course and I said, I'm just going to take it easy. I'm not going to race. I just want to go riding and it'd be like an organized trail ride, right? So I went there. When my group went, I let everyone else go. I went after them. I'm riding, having kind of cool. And I I used to race bikes back when I was a teenager, which is when I should have given it up (laughs) in hindsight. (laughs) So then people came up from the faster groups. They came up behind me. They started passing me. And I'm like, oh, I I can keep up with that guy. Another guy passed me. I can keep up with that guy. Before I knew it, I was in kind of the whole competitive racing thing. Clipped this tree, went over the handlebars, shattered my hip, ended up taking a helicopter ride to the trauma center in Camden, New Jersey. And while they were working on me there, unfortunately, they damaged the nerve in my leg, effectively killing the nerve all the way down my leg, which made it not only that I couldn't move my foot for over a year, but nerves are funky things that made it where it's just absolutely, absolutely intense nerve pain that was quite challenging, Mm. quite challenging. I was on some very serious pain medication for about a year and a half. Mm. Finally got to a point where I got off that. I was just waiting to heal up. I'm on the internet typing, you know, foot and nerve pain. And, you know, I wanted like a magic pill or a doctor mm. to do a nerve block or something. I just I just wanted it fixed. I was tired of dealing with chronic pain. Discovered along the way, wow, a lot of people out there deal with chronic pain through their whole entire life. I just opened up to a whole mm. new world of understanding the challenges some people go through out there. Mm. and. I saw this movie, Wild, about this gal that hiked the Pacific Coast Trail. 
And then I read a couple of books about people hiking the Appalachian Trail. And I thought, wow, the Appalachian Trail, it's over 2,100 miles long. If I were to hike that entire trail, I bet that would fix my leg. And my leg would have to be better by, by then. <laughs> and so started actually on the anniversary of the day that I got injured. Started out on Springer Mountain down in Georgia and went a whopping total of two and a half miles the first day. Really shouldn't have been out there. Went out there, hiked for about three or four months that first year, ended up mm. kind of driving myself into the ground, came home, recovered over the summer, went out, did some test hikes during the fall and winter, and I started again the following spring back where I'd left off down in Tennessee, and I ended up going from Tennessee all the way to Maine and summited on September 25th on top of Mount Katahdin, which was awesome. That is amazing. You did the whole yeah. AT then? Yep. Oh, that's crazy. So yep. you had a lot of time to think about things. I did. I did. And I think one of the biggest things I appreciated was the time to reflect back on life and just think about all the crazy fun time I've had in real estate deals and just all the fun times when my kids said something just really funny or cute or whatever, or just, it was just awesome. I'd be walking along the woods, just there by myself and just start laughing at times, just really enjoying some of the things that I was so busy in life before so busy working on deals and helping students and looking towards building the future that I realized that for a lot of my life, I hadn't really realized that we need to enjoy each and every moment to its fullest as we go through it, no matter what's going on. So for me, with my foot killing me as I'm hiking along, I needed to be able to find a way to be able to enjoy and appreciate that process. And what I did was I started thinking of rather than just my foot hurting me, I heard it as the nerves communicating to wanting to heal in my foot, communicating with my brain. And through the process of walking, I actually went through this process where I ended up getting off every single one of the medications and painkillers I was on. It's crazy. That's but you're out in the woods walking along and the thing's killing you. And just like, I mean, there one point in time, I just like started crying. I'm just like bawling for like 45 minutes, just crying because it just was the end of the day and I'm tired and my legs are hurting. I'm just like out here just, and you know what? After that long, it's like, okay, well, got out of my system. I'm going to do something else now. It was really interesting from that perspective. And also from the perspective of two things, number one, taking a big deal, like someone for an apartment building, if they haven't owned a, you know, a bigger apartment building, breaking that down into little chunks and saying, well, if I want to own that hundred unit apartment building, what do I need to do? You know, in the next six months? What do I have to do in, in the next month? What do I have to do in the next week? What can I do today to get started on that process and embracing your philosophy of getting that first deal out of the way, even if it's buying a duplex or a four unit at first to get to the point where you can have that bigger property. The other thing that I realized is if you look at the whole process for me, if I thought about when I was halfway through that it was another thousand miles to get to the end of Mount Katahdin, it was absolutely overwhelming. I mentally, I could not deal with it. I would start thinking about, there's no way I can possibly do this. I should just go home. I should just quit. I've made it this far. You know, you start to justify all sorts of things or have your mind work against you when you're looking at too big of a goal or too far ahead. So what I did was I would just look to the next point where I would hike, you know, two or three, four days ahead and get to a point where I could resupply. And, and that's all I would think about. I'm like, okay, well, I can make it over the next three days. I can do that. And that's all I looked at was the next chunk. And I found that that can be applied to a lot of stuff in life for real estate investing. What's the next chunk for you? If you're listening to this, what's the next thing that you want to do? Can you get Michael's book and read it? Would that be a good start? Absolutely. 
I'm surprised how many people get books and they don't even read them. It's crazy. So what is the next chunk for Peter Conti? Well, right now I'm enjoying a number of things. I play piano, which I understand you played piano. No, a long time ago. Now. <clears throat> and I have a goal of eventually getting to a point, not professionally to tour or you know get paid type of thing, but to be able to perform or play piano and, and have fun with it. It's something that I enjoy. I'm enjoying very much my four kids and the grandkids that are coming along. We've got three grandkids at this point yeah. in time. My wife is doing a startup and helping support her with that. And I'm also doing a, a limited amount of some helping people who are really serious about going after commercial investing, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not doing live events or that type of stuff anymore, but just some you know very limited one-on-one consulting and stuff like that for someone who's really serious about it. That's great. You have a new book itself. I think it's called One Simple Strategy. Yes. Yeah. And you write there that the true wealth is living a balanced life, money, financial independence, free time, loving relationships, great health, and the ability to find your spiritual self. That's a lot, right? So how are you kind of living into that? Well, it's hard. It's hard, right? You get busy and you focus on maybe one of those areas. And for all of you listening to this, I I know all of you, I mean, if you're go-getter or doing stuff, you don't have extra free time to do extra stuff. You got to find a way to fit that in. I do a lot of stuff with double duty. When I go out for a walk, I'm actually doing three things. I listen to a podcast, I'm walking to get my exercise, and I'm walking my Yorkie, my little dog at the same time. So I look for ways that I can do things and get what I call double duty out of them. Mm -hmm. I think that figuring out what it is that you want in life and realizing that something like apartment building investing is going to be a vehicle to get you the freedom that you want to be able to live the life that you want. It's not that you get this property and have, you know, millions of dollars in the bank. You have millions in the bank. And you know what? I can tell you from being there that you feel the same. And you don't want to make the mistake that some people do is they get so focused on building up their wealth that they think that that's what it's all about. It's not about the wealth. It's about two things, the life that it enables you to live, the freedom to do the thing for me, like just, you know, the ability to have the money to hire the very best jazz pianist that I could find in the entire Washington, D.C. area Mm -hmm. to be my teacher. The pianist that was going to play with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra was sick, and he was called four hours ahead of time to go in and play this piece that he had not practiced at all ahead of time, and he went in and just knocked it out perfectly. That's my teacher. That's who you want is the very best teacher, right? It's nice to be able to have the money to afford that, and that's just for piano, something I do for fun. But I think being able to recognize that it's not about the wealth for wealth's sake, but the freedom it gives you. But then also that just like my hike on the Appalachian Trail, you need to find a way to enjoy the journey. So when you're out there and you're dealing with a commercial broker who's giving you a really hard time and you're just really frustrated and they maybe they maybe they end up not talking to you or not being, you know, or who knows? You're out there, you're doing it, you're learning from the experience. And if you're persistent and I know if someone gets like your evaluator and starts going through deals and looking at them and persisting long enough, they're going to get that first deal out of the way. And then they can expect within the next two, three years to be able to say bye-bye to that job maybe that they know that they shouldn't be doing. Even for those of you listening to this, I know some of you know that you shouldn't be going to that job every day. That's one of the most expensive things you do is go to that job every day. When you compare what you're making at your job right now, if you're listening to this, to what you could be or will be making two, three, four, five years from now, with apartment building investing, you're going to think back and say, that's crazy. Why did I ever keep doing that? I should have gotten started sooner. 
Now, most of us strive for success. That's kind of what we strive for. And then some of us achieve success. And then we start thinking about significance and legacy. What is it that you want to be remembered for? I want to be remembered for someone who took time to listen to and be fully present with my wife and my kids and my grandkids. Also in my relationships with friends like you, I want to be someone who's there and able to listen and be available and support and not have it be you know just about business, but about relationships, I think is a big part of it. I want to be someone who I'm kind of curious about things. I look kind of for what could be funny about a situation mm-hmm. sometimes. I want to be known as someone who was playful and fun and happy and encouraged people to go out and go after being the very best self that they could be. If that means that real estate's a part of that, great. I'm happy to encourage someone or give them a little shove to get them going in the beginning. Some people need a kick in the pants. Or if I can share some ideas, hopefully some of the information I've shared on here has been helpful for people listening to this podcast to either apply to their investing or to say, hey, I need to look into this further and read more, go to one of your events or do something to get going and find out more to where they can start building their own commercial portfolio or put together some partnerships or syndications and have that cash flow coming in. Yeah. Well, you have so many great resources yourself, obviously. How can people connect with you? If you want to get my commercial real estate investing for dummies book. Highly recommend it. It's an awesome book. One of the things that's fun about the commercial for dummies book is with the dummies format that Wiley had us write it in, they wanted us to write each module as its own almost self-standing thing. They said, Peter, if someone just goes to chapter seven, they should be able to read that and Mm. get that whole chunk, everything down without having to have it refer back to other elements in the book. And that's kind of hard to do with commercial investing because it is a step-by-step process. But that made it fun writing it that way. And for listening to this podcast, you can actually get a free copy, Commercial Real Estate Investing for Dummies, or you can go pay for it on Amazon if you want. It's available there. But if you'd like a free copy, the book's free. All you do is cover the cost of shipping. Fabulous. Um, you can go either to peterconti.com or petersfreebook.com. Either one of those will take you to the right place and you can get that book. And I hope that that's helpful to you in your investing journey. Absolutely. Everybody who does not have that book needs to go get that book. So thank you for making that available. That's, that's awesome. Well, thanks again, Peter. I I enjoyed getting to know you better here. And uh, thank you for sharing your incredible experience with all the watchers and the listeners of the show. I really appreciate it. I wish there was a way that we could reach out through the whatever it is of podcasting land. Really just grab on to those of you listening this to let you know that I believe in your ability to go out and do great things. And I know from my experience, starting out as an auto mechanic, if I can make it investing in apartment building, investing in commercial real estate, then you know what? You can too. I wanted to encourage you to take what you can from that and go out and apply it to your life to live the life you were meant to live. You know, Peter has, he's achieved so much in life with his family and professional life. He's done events for thousands of people, seminars, books, courses, great real estate investing. He still gets, you know, checks in the thousands just from all the real estate investments he's made over, over the year. Yet, he's just a really down-to-earth, humble guy. Really enjoyed hanging out with Peter. I also found out he's a hustler. Did you know in the early days when he got started with investing, he would look at all the gurus out there and he would call them up, each one of them, and say, hey, I'm willing to work at your next event. And he did that. And he was able to get in with Robert Allen. He's just 
started working his events for free, checking people in. And so before you know it, Rob kind of said, okay, why don't you kind of be my guy and you can, you know, travel with me and, and do my events with me. And that's how that relationship with Robert Allen got started. But it all started because he provided value for free. He was working for free and he did that repeatedly throughout his life. And a lot of partnerships and things he did came out of that. Really love that. Uh, we can talk about the interview we talked about afterwards. So just hustling and providing value for people. Really awesome. And I just love the way that he went from being an auto mechanic to having these real estate empire and this training empire and really teaching others. Real inspiration to me. So I hope you found that useful. And my gosh, I figured if an auto mechanic can do it, anyone can do it. And he didn't even syndicate. That's the crazy thing of all. It was all creative financing, which is, I think, even harder to do than raising money for people. It's a great tool to have in your toolbox. Someone just told me the other day, hey, Michael, you know, do you guys have any mentoring or coaching? So I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing a good enough job telling people about our coaching programs. Okay. So if you want to find out more about our coaching programs, go to themichaelblank.com forward slash coaching. I have a great video there. It explains the program and then you can schedule a free strategy session with us and then we'll explore if there's a fit. You know, if you want to work with us and if, frankly, if we want to work with you because we don't work with every, anybody. We can teach you anything, but we can't do it for you. So we're looking for the right mix of motivation and ambition to get stuff done. And if you're one of those people and you want to become financially free in the next one to three years, coaching might be the way to do it. So check that out if you haven't done so already. Also, if you haven't done so already, make sure you grab my free ebook. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash ebook. It's called The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Fantastic, priceless skill to have, the ability to raise money, and this will get you started. And if you love the show, I'd love a review on iTunes. So go over there if you have an iDevice of some sort. Leave me a review. Love to hear from you. So thanks so much. I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.